Welcome to this episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd. Today, we are talking about Texit, not Brexit, because last time we had Brexit around, we ended up with the wolf on this show, and that was a bad thing that came out of Brexit. So, no, we're talking about Texit today, and with us from the Texas Nationalist Movement, we have Daniel with us, who is going to be an expert on all of this good stuff answer all of our questions. Daniel, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. Now, Daniel, can you, first of all, just explain the title Texas Nationalist Movement? Because a lot of people out there have a view on the word nationalist, and it's not always a positive right. view of that word. Can you explain how that word kind of fits into everything? Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, you know, the TNM was founded in 2005, uh, but we were very careful about how we created the organization, how we named it. Uh, the, the framing of our mission took almost 18 months to get right. So uh, Texas Nationalist Movement was a, a, a name for the organization that was chosen with a good deal of thought. And back uh, when, when we were considering it, there was some some hand-wringing over using that word nationalist uh, because of the connotations from the mid 20th century, right? But one of the things that we noticed was that, um, you know, we had to be true to who we were and what we were going to be doing as an organization. And so th there were a couple things that, that led us to make that, that, uh, that choice. Uh, the first one was a reference in historical literature to Mirabu Lamar, who was the second president of the Republic of Texas. He's, he's typically known as the father of Texas education, but he became known as the father of Texas nationalism. And, and part of that was his firm belief that the Republic of Texas should maintain its independence, not join the union. So uh, as president, Lamar did a lot of things to foster this sense of Texas nationalism as, as you know, being um, a, a nation among nations. So th there was that component of it where we had this historical touchstone of President Lamar. But even more important, uh, I think, than that is the sense that nationalism, by its textbook definition, doesn't have the, uh, um, the, the negative connotations that people have associated with it. In, a, in essence, a nationalist or nationalism is, is a belief in one's nation, right, and its national independence. And, and we actually have a video about that on our website at tnm.me, which takes the person through the process that we, that we went through. But the, the important part of that is understanding the word nation, right? We approach Texas with a very similar view <clears throat> to those people in the early days of, of the Republic, where we view Texas as a nation. And, and a na by nation, I mean people. And we knew that uh, every successful independence movement over the last 70 plus years has had, uh, number one, a people focus, and number two, an explicit recognition of their own nationhood, right? It's actually referred to in academic literature as internal recognition. So we, you know, after, after a bit of hand-wringing, we said, look, we have to be true to who we are. People are going to label us whatever they're going to label us anyway, right? Because they're opposed to the things that we're standing for, aka Texas independence. 
so what we have to do is we have to be true. We have to call ourselves what we are. In our sense, we are the Texas Nationalist Movement because we are an organization comprised of people that are Texas nationalists who believe in the nationhood and the independence of Texas. So that's where the name came from. Now, it's kind of strange because I've traveled to a lot of, you know, states and I know the Shepherd has also. And, you know, people, you know, are proud of their state a lot of the time in terms of its relationship to the professional you know, sports teams they follow and stuff. But I don't think any state has quite such a passionate people in terms of the love for the state as Texas does. I mean, people really, I mean, you get all these labels of like, you know, Italian American, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, living in Texas, being a Texan, there's something about this affinity with Texas, which, you know, overcomes not, I don't want to say the national pride, but, you know, being a Texan, I think means a lot more to people than people from, you know, other, other states and how they talk about their states. I've just not seen that pride in, you know, people coming from other states, like somebody from Texas. I mean, you feel like you're part of the country being in Texas without even any knowledge, you know, this Texas nationalist movement. I mean, Texans love Texas. I don't know if you can really say that about too many states in terms of, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, come on. <laughs> When's the last time you saw an Iowa-shaped waffle iron? I mean, right. you know, let, let, <laughs> let's, get, let's get real. But, you know, look, you know, uh, the author, John Steinbeck, wrote a book called Travels with Charlie, uh, where he loaded up the dog in, in the vehicle and wanted to tour around America to figure out what made America, America. And, and when he got to Texas, Steinbeck wrote that there was a sense that he had entered a different country, uh, you know, and there's some, some phenomenal quotes in there. You know, he talks about Texas as an obsession, you know, Texas is a state of mind. Uh, he talks about uh, te a Texas outside of Texas, a Texan outside of Texas is a foreigner. Uh, and then he talks about Texas is a nation in, in every sense of the word. So, you know, it, it was, it was interesting to see Steinbeck's recognition of that, not you know, back in the 1800s, but in, in a modern era that people are still alive today that, that understand it. And I think at a very fundamental level, Texans all exude that, that Texan pride, you know, the, the fact that uh, we are in every sense a, a nation, you know, and I, and I think that is really at the heart of, you know, we may have our political squabbles, uh, but at the end of the day, Texans believe that they're Texans and, you know, they may call themselves uh, Americans, they may call themselves whatever, but you ask a Texan when they go outside of the country where they're from, they will answer Texas. They will not say the United States. They will say Texas because that's just who we are. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, the, there was a time maybe about 20 years ago, I used to fly back to Europe uh, pretty frequently. Um, and it, it was just amazing. You know, I, I'd always used to fly back well, most of the time back into like JFK and stuff. And I was glad to be back in the States, but there was something different about when I, about when I touched down in DFW and my feet suddenly touched Texas soil again. I mean, it's just a very different feeling and it's hard to explain to people outside of this, you know, outside of Texas. It's certainly hard 
to, for me to explain, you know, to my relatives, you know, back in Europe and stuff. But what I want you to be able to really kind of explain, you know, to our listeners and our viewers is a lot of people view this whole kind of succession thing as very pie in the sky, like, how does this happen? How could this happen? Mm. And it's basically because a lot of people don't do much research. And so they kind of, you know, dismiss it as a possibility. But, you know, can you kind of really kind of outline, you know, the first kind of hackles up type of objection to maybe the succession of Texas, just the most commonly asked questions or uh, skepticisms people have and just kind of deflate those so people know up front this isn't this pie in the sky thing that this is actually a serious topic yeah you know it's it's interesting because you know we we obviously get a, a lot of questions um you you can imagine some of the questions i have had to answer over and over again but i think a lot of those questions come from sort of a, a fundamental misunderstanding of how the process works and, and really almost a, a lack of perspective. You know, one of the stats that we, we talk about quite often is the number of, you know, at the end of World War II, the number of, of recognized self-governing independent nation states uh, was a little north of, of 54, okay? Uh, the, in 1945, the United Nations started, and they had 51 original members, right? Uh, but by the end of the 20th century, you had 192 recognized countries around the world, and that number grew after the 21st century ticked over. And so, you know, what, what for us, I think, is important is to gain some perspective. I think people around the world, world have an easier time grasping the the concept of texas independence than sometimes our folks here do because they have seen this happen around the world you know those new countries did not fall from space the earth did not get any bigger uh they they were people just like us who said look we we believe that we are the best people to govern ourselves and not some you know entity that is outside of us whether it be some you know colonizing power or some union or whatever that is they they did what we are doing right now and they said look we we want to be a self-governing independent nation state and equal to every nation on the planet uh in in every respect okay uh so it's not a foreign concept to say texas can stand as a nation among nations if all those other countries that are now on the globe were able to do it then it's obviously something that's within our grasp because those people are no better than we are, right? If they, if it's a problem and they can figure it out, then we can figure it out too. Um, but the, the other part of that is beyond perspective is, you know, these seemingly intractable problems that people throw up, you know, like, what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to survive without all the federal money? You know, and, and that, that floats into questions like Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, you know, these current federal programs, national defense. I mean, that feeds into a lot of it, but that's ultimately a misconception, right? Because what we know as a fact is that Texans are overpaying into the union somewhere between 103 to $160 billion every single solitary year. That, that is money that is coming out of our pockets, 
right? Along with all the other money that goes to the federal government, it goes right into the federal coffers. The federal government takes a skim and then they pay that money back out in programs or services or whatever. Okay. So, uh, you know, the way that I equate this and, and the way that I like people to visualize this, imagine for a moment that you go to your doctor and your doctor draws all the blood out of your body. He takes it, he spills about 40% of it on the floor, and then he retransfuses the remaining blood back in your body. And he says, there, you wouldn't be alive without me, right? That is the, the, the monetary relationship with the federal government. So when you understand that every dollar that flows into Texas from the federal government first came out of my pocket, came out of your pockets, then, uh, you know, but after taking a little bit of a haircut comes back, now all of a sudden you realize that when you start thinking about these programs like Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid or any, you know, national defense, all of those things that people talk about federal money coming into Texas, um, if we kept our money here at home, we could not only fund those programs, but have a surplus enough to eliminate things like property tax. So, you know, that, so when you're looking at, at those issues where it's about money, that's an important thing to understand. And then finally, there are a lot of these questions that we get a, a lot of times about post-Texas policy. Like, how is our national defense going to work? What are we going to use for money? Things of that nature. And there are definite answers to, the, to, to every single one of those uh, questions that, that people throw up. But ultimately, it's not our place to answer those questions right now as far as what the final thing is going to be simply because the, the important part of self-government is for the first time in our lives, we actually get to decide that, right? Up until the point of Texas independence, those decisions are all being made by two and a half million unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. So, you know, we're going to be able to do that. And we obviously, there are obviously policies in place uh, that exist either through existing federal statute that would dictate our relationship with the federal government or international covenants and conventions that deal with, uh, you know, basically treaties that nations have with one another related to trade and fishing and air traffic control and all of those sorts of things. Uh, but I think, you know, all of that almost takes away the most important part of reclaiming our right of self-government. And that is that we actually get to make those decisions for ourselves for once. Yeah, I think, um, well, for me, one of the annoying things is when I see this Calex, you know, California <laughs> succeeded from the union and, you know, that there was a big push maybe the last 12 months before, you know, the last election that Donald Trump won again, that, you know, they were going to, send out these polls and see if, you know, California could succeed. And one of the dumbest things was that um, California was stating that, hey, we've got, you know, we were an independent country. We have maybe the 12th in the world GDP. And it was like, yeah, but you're broke. You've been broke for 38 years. If you weren't getting federal money, you'd be like Venezuela you know, pretty much within a weekend. The thing is with Texas, I mean, you know, I mean, God bless the guys who wrote our constitution in Texas, you know, we don't go into debt. We balance the books. We don't need federal money. And what you said, I mean, I think the average of the last six or seven years was $146 billion we overpaid into the government, which we didn't get back. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the annual average is such, and this is the way I like to equate, especially for where I'm at down here on the coast. Uh, and, and people understand this uh, quite well. The, the, it, it is the negative economic impact. It's like having Hurricane Harvey, right? One of the most devastating storm slash hurricanes to hit Texas in a very long time. It's like having Hurricane Harvey hit every nine months. That's how much the overpayment is like. And I mean, you know, I, I challenge people all the time, you know, and, and we can talk about some more of the stats and some of the grievances, but I challenge people all the time to think about if that money stayed here in Texas, right? Okay. So we're just, we're going to say that inst instead of sending it to Washington, DC, we're going to keep it right here. Well, first and foremost, what would that change in public policy? No more would our legislature be meeting every other year for 140 days beating each other over the head, trying to figure out how they're going to fund things because we would, we would be flush with cash. But more importantly, how would that change our lives? Like individually, how would it change your family? How would it change my family to not have that money siphoned off into Washington, DC to be frittered away in other States or, you know, I mean, just completely wasted because everyone knows that the federal government is not the most efficient in the world. So, you know, what, what is, what does, that change in our lives look like if we're not being stolen from every time our paychecks hit? Well, that, there are a couple of um, independent studies which said, you know, Texas did actually succeed that we could almost become like Las Vegas and eliminate personal income tax. Well, we don't have know, personal income tax here. You know, we, we currently don't have personal income tax. Well, I mean, as in terms of paying taxes, oh, the yeah. tax is pay to, you know, the IRS, that that could almost be eliminated in terms of, you know, the cost of us doing business with other states and actually taking part in some of the trade programs, which obviously as being part of the United States we're in, the amount of money we would actually make, we could completely eliminate that taxation upon personal income. Oh yeah. I mean, that, it, it could definitely go away, uh, but I'll, I'll even, I'll even throw you this one because this is one that people don't talk about very much. Um, and, and it, it is pretty dry. So you have to bear with me. Um, but there was a, a study that was conducted, uh, by George Mason university. Actually, there, there were two different studies, but I, I don't recall the first one, but, but they came out with essentially the same results. And, and what they were doing was they were studying an effect of uh, what they called federal regulatory accumulation, right? It's basically studying the fact that the federal government has never met a regulation that they don't like. So they regulate something related to the economy. And then rather than repealing that regulation or tweaking that regulation, they just lay another one on top of it. And then they lay another on top of it and it goes on and on. So they rolled this study back to, I believe, 1949, which is when we started to see the, the real growth of the federal super state. And, and uh, what they found was absolutely stunning. They, by the time the study was published, the median average household income or the median household income was about 52000 a little bit north of $52,000 a year. And what they said that in, in the absence of this federal regulatory accumulation, the median household income would have been about $330,000 a year. So the, the headline from that and the takeaway is that with these federal regulations, the federal government is essentially siphoning 75 to 
of your take-home pay. That's before they even start taxing it, right? That's just through all of the regulations that compress GDP. Now, you know, you, what, you do the flip side of that and go, okay, well, in the absence of those federal regulations that have been painted over one right after the other, what does that mean for us? Well, that means that anyone who can get out from the umbrella of those and, and not only, you know, maintain their current economic status, that means a, about a 600% pay increase for everyone. Well, you take the, the average overpayment, the 103 to $160 billion a year, you remove the federal regulatory accumulation and you look at how that increases the, the circulation. Well, now all of a sudden, we're not talking about Texas being the ninth or 10th largest economy in the world. We're talking about Texas being about the fourth or fifth largest economy in the world. And we're talking about the ability because of all of that money now flowing through the system to eliminate uh, any type of income tax. Frankly, we can very like, well, I mean, just with the surplus, we could get rid of property tax 100% and just basically continue at the same rate of consumption tax that we're currently at. So, you know, we're talking about a major improvement in the standard of life uh, or in the standard of living, not just for, you know, not just for the middle class and for the wealthy, but more importantly for the working poor and those below the poverty line. Because that study showed that the impact, first off, Texas was disproportionately affected by federal overregulation. But more importantly, the people that were the most affected were the working poor and those below the poverty line. Because those, you know, those effects, the effects of the regulations were regressive. They had a tendency to drive prices up for the goods and services most used by those that are the working poor and below the poverty line. But it also increased the barrier to entry for starting new businesses for entrepreneurship, which is traditionally the bridge between poverty and prosperity. So, you know, when we can show empirically with absolutely no question whatsoever. There is no debate on this issue. When we can show that the federal government is harming us, not just economically, but across all these spectrum, but, but primarily economically, and we can show that it affects all Texans equally, whether you're wealthy or where you're absolutely poor, and Texas becomes a way that we can alleviate that and bring prosperity to everyone in Texas, then, you know, we have to have this conversation. Yeah. Now, one of the, um, I, I think, big fears people in Texas, and I'm even talking about some native Texans, not just newcomers to the state over the last couple of decades, right. have is basically the infrastructure. They hear these horror stories about, oh, yeah, you won't be part of the national grid, you know, the water system, agriculture, yep. tech. And then it's like, spend five minutes on the Internet. I mean, I think we have two electrical grids of our own. You know, we've got the best freshwater system. I think we're in the top two or three in the entire nation for fresh water. You know, outside of Silicon Valley, we've got, you know, the best tech <laughs> mines, you know, in the country here. And agriculturally, I mean, again, there's almost nothing we can't grow here. We are self-sustaining. But again, people have these horror stories about how will Texas survive if we disconnect away from the rest of the United States. And, you know, they suddenly put these tariffs on us that these goods cost so much, you know. But we export far more of what we do, you know, than we actually bring in. And we look at California again. They have to buy water. They have to buy fresh water. You know, I mean, they, they, can go, they can get a blackout. They can have half of, you know, California having no power. 
you know, that, that's not going to happen in Texas. But people, it, it's not through necessarily willful ignorance. They just hear these sound bites of how we need to be reliant upon the federal government for certain things. And they don't realize just how good the infrastructure here is in Texas across the board. Yeah, we're world class. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that we, we are a self-governing nation in, every, in, in almost every sense of the word, except for the fact that we don't have the right to govern ourselves as part of this union, you know? And, and I think that a lot of, of, what, of what, what you're describing is really part and parcel of fear-mongering. I mean, there's, there's a tremendous amount of that. The opposition, and, and make no mistake about it, the opposition to this <clears throat> has been there for many, many years. I mean, from the moment we were conceived in 2005, uh, we hit them. And, and what it is, it's a political establishment that loves to have their hands in our pockets, who loves to have all of, you know, basically to control us, uh, and, and every, you know, our economic system, our, our politics, uh, you know, the, the cultural engineers that are out there, uh, you know, they, it is a well-entrenched political establishment that we are battling against because they don't want to see the people take the power into their own hands to reclaim their right of self-government. And, and the fact of the matter is, is when you look at all of that fear-mongering, I mean, you, you literally just did it. You dispelled the fear-mongering with facts you know we're you know here, here we are in texas there, there are three electrical grids in in the united states there's the east inter, the eastern interconnect the western interconnect in, in texas right so we have our own power grid now is that a is that a necessity for independence and, and self-government absolutely not you know we are the number one exporter of manufactured goods among all the states of the united states the port of laredo has surpassed the port of Los Angeles in trade, and it's an inland port. I mean, I think that's important for people to understand. Uh, you know, so is that necessary for us to be independent? Absolutely not. Uh, across every measure, when you begin to measure Texas up against other self-governing nations around the world, you know, we're, we're coming out in the top 10 lists over and over and over across almost every measure that matters. And, and so all of this idea, all of these ideas uh, and discussion about Texas wouldn't be able to make it. I mean, I, I don't know any self-respecting Texan that would really buy into that. <laughs> yeah. I, I and the funny thing is, I mean, I think you take many died in the world Texans, they wouldn't even care. You know, they'd rather scrimp it and be Texan than, you know, have to really, you know, fight, fight with the dogs for stuff. But I think, you know, outside of Texas, you know, a lot of states are very dependent on a number of other states to actually keep living the way they live. And I think the thing is here in Texas, we're really not like that. If, you know, something happened tomorrow and we could not trade with another state, we could not trade with another country. I don't think for the most part, any Texans would notice. And I don't think there are any other states which could really, you know, kind of say that. I mean, we, we are without actually succeeding our own nation, but we're still, you know, having to pay this money federally. But as much as it should probably hurt us every single year, which goes past, you know, we keep 
smashing through these barriers and making more and more money in tech and agriculture and everything else to the point where it, I think it's, I uh, can't remember the guy's name, but he said that, you know, Texas pretty much, if you took Texas away from the United States, the GDP would fall down so much to the point where the national debt would increase, where, you know, our borrowing rates in China and everywhere else would get to the point, it would have a stranglehold on the Fed. And, you know, Texas, we don't need the United States. United States needs Texas. I mean, that, that's been proven economically. I mean, it's been proven in terms of, you look at, you know, across the military, they need Texas. In terms of, you know, strategic point, you need Texas. In terms of agriculture, in terms of a lot of things, the United States needs Texas. And sometimes I feel like, I, I don't know, I, I kind of get a little bit angry in the way we're treated at times, you know, and the, the attitudes towards Texas. Because, you know, it's just like, well, we don't need you type thing. But yeah. again, I mean, we're all, you know, that's the thing in Texas. We are patriots. We do love our country. We do love the United States. But, you know, many of us, we love Texas more. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I kind of wonder at what point where we're going to be pushed to where this actually becomes a real thing. And we put this in front of people and say, look, you know, we really don't have to put up with this. I mean, now I think on your website, you've got just over 400,000 people who have, you know, registered and the population of Texas is just under 30 million. Right. Now people might say, all right, you know, that's not a high proportion of, you know, representation of Texas, but it actually is given people who have gone to your website and actually registered on there. Yeah. Now, have you done much polling, you know, across the state in terms of people you know, percentage-wise, good numbers who actually do support Texas leaving, you know, the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Look, and, and I'll get to that, but your compadre is chomping at the bit over there. I, I know he's getting ready to either ask me a great question or, or – He just he, 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 he needs ground. to go potty. I know that, look. He needs to go potty. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's kind of ironic because I, I was kind of floating towards that – same kind of question you know what what is the hurdle it, yeah we, we're all sitting here all three of us were texans and yeah. i'm i'm sitting here listening to this and i'm saying to myself you know hey, hey this all sounds great but what is the hurdle yeah where where are the uh, the polling numbers so to speak right yeah. and and what's what's that next hurdle to get this rolling forward uh, yeah and I can, you know, and has the Texas Nationalist Movement kind of done their research there to try to figure out, you know, where do we where do we go from here? Right. Yeah. Look, I can I can knock both of these questions out in one answer, but you got to give you got to give me a little little space to expand it. As you as you've noticed, there are typically no simple answers where this is concerned. But but here's what it boils down to. Um, There's a, you know, the, it's really about process. Okay. So let, let me start with the process and then I'm going to, I'm going to take the, the, the question about, you know, the number of supporters versus kind of the population and, and we'll, we'll address that. Okay. So the, the process is, is pretty straightforward. If Texas was a state that had 
citizen initiative, this would already be on the ballot, right? But what it takes for us, Article 1, Section 2 of the Texas Constitution is abundantly clear. It says all political powers inherent in the people, and it says that the people have at all times the inalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish their form of government in such manner as they may think expedient, right? So what this means is this, this question has to be put to the people of Texas. So the, the, the first step in this process is that, is we have to get this on a ballot for the people of Texas to vote on. Now, the challenge with that is, is that there is no statute that allows us to do that. There's no citizen initiative where as citizens, we can get signatures and force something on the ballot. So what we have to rely on is we have to rely on a legislative process. We have to have the legislature place a statute on the books that will give us this vote, okay? Now, that, that part of it is happening right now. Uh, after working on legislative issues since 2009, uh, where we implored these guys, we rallied up, we did all the things necessary to try to get somebody to at least introduce the legislation. Uh, this session, last month, uh, State Representative Kyle Biederman from down in the Hill Country filed HB 1359, which will do that. It's called the Texas Independence Referendum Act. And it says, look, let's put the question to the people of Texas over whether or not they want to stay or go. So very similar to the UK referendum and Brexit, to the Scottish independence referendum in 2014, all the way back to the 48 or so independence referenda, all the way back to 1900. This is the question that if this legislation passes will be put to the people of Texas. It is a very black and white issue, right? It's like either you support the right of the people to vote on this or you do not. Because the, the issue that's not up for discussion right now is Texas. The issue related to this legislation is whether or not an elected official believes that the people are smart enough and competent enough to make an appropriate, to make their own decision on this issue. Uh, I think it's notable that all of the politicians that are coming out swinging against this are coming out swinging at the issue of Texas. They say Texas is fringe. They say it is extreme. They say it won't happen. They, you know, they're of all these project fear assertions. And then they turn around and they say, uh, but I don't want the people to be able to vote on it. Well, if it is so fringe, if it is so extreme, if it will never happen, then why not let, why not put it on a ballot and let the people vote for it? I mean, li literally the only thing it costs is the ink on the paper if it's a paper ballot, or the electricity to light the pixels on the screen for people to, to make their choice. That's all it costs because the vote in and of itself is not to extract us. It's to begin the process of developing a transitional plan. So, so that, that's the process question, right? And, and so to, to your question about is there enough support out there, in 2005, when we started, support for independence was polling in single digits, okay? Just because most people weren't on board didn't mean it wasn't the right thing to do. So we had to go out and we had to set about educating people on this issue. The number one, the number one issue that is holding this back has been the belief in the people that it can happen. Not that it should happen, right? We were blowing those polls out by 2009, almost half of Republicans, about 45% of independents, 
and uh, 15% of Democrats were saying that Texas would be better off as an independent nation. Fast forward to 2014, where you had over half of Republicans, right at half of independents and 35% of Democrats say that Texas should become an independent nation. We've done tons of third-party polling. You had in a recent poll, I think 53, 54%, maybe even higher, uh, in a Victory Insights poll of Republicans say that they would absolutely vote for Texas to leave the union uh, if Joe Biden takes office. So there, there's tons of polling, both third parties and uh, you know internally that we do, that, that indicates that if this thing goes to the ballot, we win. Uh, and, and so what I tell people is, look, we wouldn't be pushing so hard for the referendum if we didn't think that we were going to win it. Consistently, internal polls show, our internal polls show, that we poll anywhere from eight to 12 percentage points ahead of those people who want to leave or who want to stay, excuse me. So the, the fact of the matter is, is we're pushing hard. We think we'll, we'll slam dunk it by a 10 to 15 point margin because we can make our case. And, and we, can, we can talk about that case here in a minute, but I, I really want to address this issue about the number of supporters listed on our website versus the population of Texas. Literally, no other organization is measured by that metric. None. Uh, if you look at our declared supporters as a ratio of the, the populace of Texas and the voters, and you can compare us to other major organizations like the National Organization of Women or the NAACP or the NRA, uh, we are outside of the two major political parties here in Texas. We are the largest political advocacy organization here. We're the second largest independence movement in the Western Hemisphere and one of the largest in the entire world. If, if we were, and literally, if we were a political party, we would be a major third party here in Texas. Now, we're not, and we have no intention of doing that, but the fact of the matter is, is that when it comes to the size of our organization, the opposition loves to look at that number, right? We put it up there on purpose. That wasn't an accident. We needed Texan, we needed to overcome the greatest weapon that the opposition has had. And, and I alluded to it a moment ago. It's when the politicians talk about this idea of being extreme, when they talk about that it's fringe, uh, what, the, the greatest weapon that they have in their arsenal that has kept this back is us. It's the people themselves. So what we have done, our strategy has been to engage in this like retail politics, like any other political advocacy organization, and to remind Texans that feel this way that they are not alone. We literally instruct our volunteers to, at this moment in time, do not look to convince anyone. That's not the battle for today. The, the bat, that is the battle for when it's time to go to the polls and vote on Texas. The work that we have to do right now is connect with Texans who are already convinced. Uh, there, are, there are enough of us in Texas right now that believe that not only Texas would be better off as an independent nation, but that we should make that choice that we can not only get a referendum on independence, but we could win that referendum. Are, are we a little bit concerned about the influx of what I'd love to call foreigners, right? You know, the you know California, California, right? <laughs> Californians are, are running over here to Texas. New Yorkers are running here to Texas. Every, everybody's jumping in and saying, you know, hey, I'm, 
not only do I want to move to Texas, I want to go ahead and tell all my friends to move to Texas. And then they show up here. Now you put something on the ballot and you say, hey, we're going to be independent. And these guys that come over from different states are saying, well, and now hang on a second. I thought I was just moving to a different state because I've lived in four or five different states before. I don't want to move countries. I, I just want to live in the U.S., but you know, Texas is so much better. And of course we all know that, right? But now all of a sudden you put this ballot initiative out there and all these people do have the right to vote. Is that a concern? Well, I think it is a concern, but, but look, I'll answer that from number one, from our experience and the experience, well, let's take experience out of it. I'll answer it from that, but I'll also give you hard data on how things really are. There is a concern out there about folks that are moving in to Texas from these other states where they have had these failed economic policies and failed social policies and the politics is about, you know, teetering on, uh, you know, Karl, Mar uh, Karl Marx wet dream. Uh, but but the, the bottom line is our experience has been that uh, so many of those people that are coming to Texas right now are coming to Texas because it's Texas and because they are essentially political, cultural, or economic refugees from the state in which they live, right? So those failed policies are driving out people who are, in, in, a, in a large sense, Texans in spirit, right? They have an independent spirit. They believe that the government that governs best governs least. Uh, they don't want the government with their hand jammed down their pockets, you know, all of those sorts of things. So those people are, are fleeing those places as essentially refugees and what we're hearing from, uh, you know, so many of those people is many of them are coming here specifically because they expect Texas to leave the union and they want to get here before they need to apply for a visa to get here. So, you know, that, that's a, that's a wonderful scenario to be in and it's, it's anecdotal, but let's talk about real on the ground politics. Uh, and you don't even have to take my word for it. Uh, Governor Greg Abbott was speaking at an event with the Texas Public Policy Foundation a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about, he, he actually told this story. So if anyone wants to fact check me, go look and see what the governor said about it. Oh, oh now, before you go any farther, nobody fact checks our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I'm used to it, right? Yeah, yeah. We, 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 we made a comment that dwarves <laughs> make up 72% of the population and nobody questioned it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. But I'm still putting the challenge out there anyway. Okay. Yeah. Because someone will. I, I get fact checked more than anyone, I think. Yeah. Now, can I interrupt you real quick? When I mentioned that, you know, your website had over 400,000 yeah. registered users and there's just under 30 million in Texas. That is actually quite a high percentage of people who identify with a movement when it's online. Um, because it, it was just like when, you know, Donald Trump got elected the first time around, you know, that sleeper movement, you can never allow for that sleeper movement. So whenever you see, like, say, you know, you've got over 400,000 supporters on your website, the numbers are going to be astronomically higher than what it is there. And I think, 
like I said, there needs to be either a catalyst, mm -hmm. some kind of timber box, which is really going to make people take this seriously. Mm -hmm. And I don't know economically, you know, how this government, which we have now, is going to be treating things across this next six, 12, 18 months, two years, three years, whatever. But we do know that Texans, you can only push them so far. Sure. And there's some people who are very passive who might not necessarily identify, you know, with the Texas movement, who if you push them, these good old boys in West Texas and East Texas and here, there and everywhere, you know, they may not be nailing their colors to the mast at the moment because there's no need to, but you push them into a corner, you make things difficult for them, you start hitting their paycheck, you start affecting their family and stuff. These people are going to come out and really you know, bring more numbers to this movement. At the moment, you've just got the people who, that they just give an opinion because none of us are in a boat at the moment in Texas where anybody's pushing us to have, to really give an opinion on things, you know? And that's why I think that number, that 400,000 is actually pretty freaking impressive given we're not in a pressure situation to actually give an opinion on it. Sure. Oh, look, you know, there are the two, two points uh, on that. You know, if you look and see how many, like if you want a, a textbook definition by statute of how many members are, there are in the Republican Party of Texas, which is the dominant political party, uh, that number by statute definition is about 2.1 million. Okay, so that's, if you want to know how many Republican, actual Republicans there are, that's about 2.1 million. So, where did the thank you? Where did the where did the rest of those votes come from? Right. So it's not who has declared their support. It's at the end of the day how many people are going to go vote for this on the ballot. And and there is a correlation between the two. Right. You can show that. But what we've always said is is that every discussion about this is just a thought exercise until it gets on a ballot and then it becomes real. And just like you saw the silent Brexit voters bring, I mean, they're, they're the ones who swung the UK out of the EU, right? It wasn't the, you know, you, you, everyone had a role to play, but UKIP, uh, leave.eu, I mean, they, they did what they do, but ultimately what did it were those people that were sort of harboring this feeling, you know, harboring that feeling that the, you know, the only flag on the polls, of government building should be the union Jack. Those people are the, those people are the ones that had never said anything to anyone, had never attended a meeting, had never attended a rally, had never joined anything, but waited for the opportunity where their voice would matter, where their vote could, would count. And that's where we are right now. You know, when, when we're out here doing this work, we're connecting with the people that are convinced we're connecting with people that have been waiting for this their entire lives, people who may have just swung over to it because, excuse me, because of external circumstances, <clears throat> you know, what, what, whatever, whatever their impetus was. But there will always be a chunk of people here in Texas that have been feeling this way their entire lives, and all they've wanted is the opportunity to cast a vote. So you want to talk about the catalyst. I mean, our goal, our, our milestone our first milestone on this road was to get legislation filed. That's been done. Now the horse is out of the barn, right? Whether the legislature passes it this session 
or stands in the way, it will have repercussions for the, for the, until, you know, probably for the next hundred years of Texas politics. And the people of Texas who have had an opportunity to, to you know, potentially vote on this thing are not going to give up and go away. This issue will define politics more than, than any other policy issue that Texas government has tackled. Uh, and it will. And look, I'm, I, this is not hyperbole. What's happening in the next few weeks will determine the course of Texas politics for the next 100 years. Now, can I ask you uh, a question? And I know this is, again, one of the most common questions which comes up when we talk about succession of the state. And I'm having to go from my memory here, but I'm a genius. I'm sure I can remember. Um, it was the, can a state legally concede? And I think it was 1869. Texas uh, versus white. Texas versus white, right? <laughs> and the Supreme Court, um, hold on one second. They ruled that unilateral succession was unconstitutional unless revolutional consent of the states could lead uh, what was it to a successful succession? Now, what does that? That's the thing when most people look up about yeah. whether a state can succeed. Can you answer that? Because I know that in itself, that ruling is not absolute. I mean, that's uh, it's, it's garbage. It's garbage. yeah, it's, yeah. You, okay, so here you go, gentlemen, and I and I use that that term in the most endearing sense. Uh, I am going to take this opportunity on your podcast to put a stake through the heart of Texas versus white uh, because it is absolutely and utterly ridiculous. And, and here's what I'm going to tell you. First off, 99.9999% of the people who throw that out as an excuse have never read the case, don't know any facts about the case and have no knowledge of anything that happened in the Supreme court after that. Right. They, they heard it from some, uh, you know, third-rate adjunct professor at Bug Tussle Community College who got tinged by a local media outlet to chime in on this. And, and it's so much garbage, okay? So let, let me just start off by laying the groundwork before I get to Texas versus white. The United States Constitution is absolutely silent on the issue of a state leaving the union. And some people will say, well, because, well, that means that the Constitution doesn't allow you to do it. It's like, no, no, no. You don't understand how this works. The United States Constitution is a limiting document on the federal government. Literally, in Article 10 is a list of items of things that the states cannot do. They, they you know, the list. States cannot coin money, right? I mean, th there's an entire list. Leaving is not on that list, okay? So what the operative section that we got to worry about now is the 10th amendment, right? Which says that any powers not given to the federal government are reserved to the people in the states. Okay. So that means it's a state decision and our constitution is abundant. Article one, section two, that I quoted earlier, it's a P it's up to the people of Texas to determine our destiny, right? So you can take this idea that it's unconstitutional and throw it in the garbage. There is no federal law prohibiting it. There is no provision of the constitution prohibiting it. So they fall back on this ridiculous notion that the Supreme Court in Texas versus white said that states can't leave. So it is time for my takedown of Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase. The, the, the case at the heart of Texas versus white was a, an issue over bonds that were issued by the Confederate government of Texas 
during the Civil War, okay, and there's a whole bit of interesting nuance there because it, it actually came, those bonds were originally from the part of Texas that was sold off to the United States, right? Remember when, when we had that nice little panhandle shape and we actually had our own ski resorts, okay? Um, or could well, have had our own ski resorts. Well, now, now, hang on. Yeah, that was when Colorado was up there. We don't want to accept Colorado. You know, it, it it reached up there, so so no, we we well, don't look, accept we, them. We don't we, accept them. Look, we don't <laughs> we don't want to drive the waffle iron guys out of business, right? We don't want them to have to go back to the factory and recut their waffle iron molds. So the map stays as it is. Okay, so so that's what it was about. It was about these bonds and whether or not the the bonds should have been cashed. Now, interestingly enough, Salmon P. Chase, before he was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court was the Secretary of Treasury under Lincoln. And he would have been the guy who would have had to sign off on the receipt of bonds to pay out the money. Okay, so first off, Salmon P. Chase should have never been sitting in that suit because it was something that happened under his tenure as Secretary of the Treasury. Okay, but let's go beyond that. Let's look at what Chase said in his ruling. Now, you, you mentioned some parts of it where you know, consent of the states are by revolution, but you have to look at what Chase says. First off, he says that the union is an indestructible union comprised of indestructible states. Okay, so first question, if it is, if both the union and the states are indestructible, someone has got to explain West Virginia to me, because the last I heard, if we're indestructible, then you can't go chip off a piece, right? So, you know, because that's really what we're talking about. So explain West Virginia, but, but that's not the important part. That's the funny part. The, the real interesting part was when you start following Chase's logic, how he got to that conclusion. So gentlemen, buckle your seatbelts for this most interesting mental gymnastic exercise from Sam and P. Chase. Now we were all taught in school that the, the colonies became states, right? They, when they declared their independence, they declared themselves states equal to the status of the state of Great Britain, right? That is straight from the Declaration of Independence. So they were 13 self-governing independent nation states that were united in their opposition to King George. So they then drafted a document called the Articles of Confederation, which they began to govern themselves under. And then we all know the story that they thought the articles wasn't working for them. You know, there were some, some provisions. So what they did was they sent these delegates off to a convention to amend the Articles of Confederation to try to make it work out. And instead, what happened was the convention chucked the Articles of Confederation and came up with a completely brand new document called which was eventually the US United States Constitution, right? And then that constitution had to be sent to the states to be ratified. So the Articles of Confederation were no more and the United States Constitution became the operative. So Salmon P. Chase though, made the argument that the United States Constitution was not a new document in and of itself, but was merely an amendment to the Articles of Confederation. So his assertion was, is that the Articles of Confederation were still in effect at the time of the Civil War, and the Constitution was an, amend, an amending document to it. Now, any school kid can tell you that that's garbage, and, and it was so 
out there as a legal theory at the time, people raised their eyebrows, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But what's interesting about his theory is that he said, okay, because it's an amending instrument to the Articles of Confederation, the Articles of Confederation refer to the Union as a perpetual union. And so, therefore, in the preamble to the Constitution, when it says to form a more perfect union, it is to form a more perfect perpetual union. I guess perpetual version 2.0, maybe, is what he was going after. So, you know, how do you make something perpetual even more perfect, right? You can't make it more perpetual. So what does that mean? Well, that means that if you can't make it more perpetual, but yet it's going to be more perfect, then it has to be less perpetual, right? But that's beside the point because, interestingly enough, when it comes to that, that, that argument, if Chase is right, he invalidated George Washington's first term as president because by the time of George Washington's first term as president, by the time he was elected, not enough states had ratified the U.S. Constitution, right? Uh, there were still a couple of holdouts that hadn't ratified it yet. So he essentially nullifies George Washington's first term as president. Uh, but more importantly, he sets the stage for something very interesting that happens later, not in Texas versus White, but in a subsequent Supreme Court case called Jacobson v. Massachusetts. Because remember, Chase's entire assertion is predicated upon his reading of the preamble of the U.S. Constitution, right? And it's in the U.S. The preamble is the only connecting linkage that he has to the Articles of Confederation for his argument. Subsequent case called Jacobson v. Massachusetts, which held that the federal government can derive no powers from the preamble of the Constitution. So you don't have to overturn Texas versus White directly by a case about secession because, frankly, it wasn't about secession to begin with. You don't even have to deal with it at all because you can look at it and say it's dicta, right? It's just commentary. But what's important is the base argument that Chase uses for his assertion was utterly destroyed by a subsequent Supreme Court in Jacobson v. Massachusetts. When you cut that linkage off, you destroy his entire argument. But even more basic than that, Texas versus White is internally contradictory, okay? When he says it's an indestructible union of indestructible states, but then later goes on to say, <clears throat> excuse me, later goes on to say that there was no provision, there's no way for states to leave except by consent of the other states or revolution. Well, which one is it? Is it a perpetual indestructible union or is there a way to leave? So the fact that he actually con totally contradicts himself, I mean, those are flip sides you know, those are two completely opposite positions. They can't live within the same decision and both be right. And so if they both can't be right, then ultimately neither are right. So long story short is that people who want to bring up Texas versus white, aside from the fact that most have never actually read it or understand it or looked at it, the world didn't stop spinning in 1869. You know, the world kept moving. Our constitution here in Texas was, was written in 1876, right? So post Texas versus white post civil war and article one, section one ends with the words that the perpetuity of the union depends on the right of local self government unimpaired to all the States. Basically saying, as long as we, our right of self government, our local self government is preserved, then we'll stay in the union. Otherwise we're out of here. 
you know, the, the implied exit strategy. And then you have the reservation of the rights in Article 1, Section 2. So at the end of the day, the question of Texas independence is not a judicial one. It's a political one. It's only in the hands of the people. The, 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 so to, to put an, uh, an end point on Texas versus white, understand that the decision, the opinion rendered by Chase in Texas versus white was so controversial among the northern states that they were actually proposing, regu- re, um, they were proposing resolutions and potential laws to restrain the power of the Supreme Court and to uh, essentially reinforce the existing belief that the Supreme Court cannot and should not legislate from the bench. Legislators in northern states were outraged, and everyone thought that Salmon P. Chase was crazy. And frankly, he was, because he was utilizing that to try to retroactively justify some of the actions that the federal government took towards states that left. But that's a a discussion for academics uh, that deal with history. What we're talking about is what our rights are right now. And and what we have seen post-Texas versus white is we have seen a federal government policy uh, that has sent our grandfathers, our fathers, our sons and daughters overseas to fight and potentially die for the right of self-determination for people all around the world. You literally just had Joe Biden take to the airwaves and condemn the government of Burma or Myanmar, whichever one you prefer, for overturning the results of a fair, democratically held election, a vote that essentially would have put a a people-elected government in power. So the implied, the, the implication when people invoke Texas versus white is that if we do the same, if we decide we're going to vote, that somehow it will lead to Civil War II Union harder, right? That somehow they're going to send the troops and everything else. But the fact of the matter is that is not the way the world works now. It hasn't worked that way for some time. And I think it's going to be very hard to justify to the American people that, you know, that if Texans, if our only crime is going to the polls and voting for our self-government, it's going to be very hard to justify the federal government policy to intervene in Burma when a government suppresses the people's right to vote and then turn right around and do the same thing right here in Texas. Yeah. Now, um, sorry, that was, was a long a, one, guys. There was, there was actually a Discovery <laughs> Channel show, I think it was close to about a year and a half ago, and it was talking about civil war, the chances of another civil war in the United States. And every single model from every historian, every professor they ran, they said, you have to take Texas out of the equation because the side with Texas always wins. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't matter because like, you know, you got the landmass, the advantage it has in terms of, you know, again, the electricity grid, the fresh water supply, agriculture, everything else, but also the number of ex-vets, the number of hunters, snipers, everything else, that any simulation you do of a civil war model in the United States of America, President, President Day, you have to take Texas out of the equation because Texas wins. And they even went a little bit further. They ran these models through that, like, even if the other 49 states went against Texas, it'd be a twin cast that Texas wouldn't defeat the other 49 states. I mean, in terms of how we can hold our own, you know, that's not really up for debate. 
But what is obviously going to occur is that, you know, this is actually pushed towards a popular vote, you know, among the people of Texas. Right. There is definitely going to be a pushback from Washington because they don't want us to leave. Because like we said earlier, they needed us. They need us. We don't need them. Yeah. And they realize they lose us. It's going to be a huge economic hit. Um, so there is going to be pushback and, you know, one, one thing I can say, uh, and I've said to multiple people, you know, I've got, you know, friends, relatives living in other states is it doesn't matter whether you agree with the politics of, you know, Greg Abbott, um, you know, Cruz, whatever, you know, they stick up for us, you know, and it, the, I know they don't represent everybody's feelings in Texas, but they stick up for Texas. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you how many friends I've had who they're embarrassed of their state representatives who don't stand up for their state. I mean, one thing I will say, you know, about our representatives in Texas, they prove, they do pretty much for the whole stick up for us. You know, I, I don't, and that's definitely not paramount among the rest of the states in the union. I mean, they, they really kind of, pander to their own positions in terms of wanting to be re-elected, who they're pandering to, you know, and the higher people in their party, you know, to the government. But our Texas representatives have done a pretty good job representing us and the people in Texas, you know, against a lot of the criticisms of you need to do this, you need to do that. We stand pretty firm against the federal government compared to the majority of states, I think. Yeah, but but ultimately the the question is why should we have to do that all the time? I mean, we're we are Texas is constantly having to do battle with the federal government over encroachment, right? <clears throat> and I think it, it really sort of boils down to these these tensions between the states, between one another in, in the federal system. And you know, there are on the lips of many people a prediction of civil war. But what what we have always said when people start pitching Texas leaving the union or any state leaving the union for that matter as you know, the start of a second civil war, we, we point to recent history to show us that rather than causing a civil war, it, it will prevent, it's going to ultimately prevent one. Uh, you know, there was the case of, of Sudan uh, where they had a civil war that raged for 30 years, uh, millions dead uh, in that civil war. And, and ultimately the solution to that, which brought peace, was to separate and to be North Sudan and South Sudan. So, you know, if we're experiencing, if the system, the federal system is so broken that we're experiencing so much tension that people are even having conversations about a civil war or implying that if a state were to leave that military force would be used, it's, it's definitely past time to have this conversation. We need to be having the conversation about separating ourselves now. Uh, rather than later, because there might not be a later. Uh, 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 look, somebody else, he's yeah. itching again. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm itching. You know, I, I, I'm the only one that's hitting the, the mute button. I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, trying to navigate all this stuff. But so one of the questions I've got for you is a lot of times, if you look back in the history of the United States, right, and you have the different purchases you have texas coming in you know they were a country before they came into the union you had all these different aspects of how territories became part of the united states is there a possibility or in your organization that you've looked at that said hey let's 
back up and, and kind of reverse engineer this and be like Puerto Rico and say, you know what? We don't want to be a state anymore. We're going to go to a territory. We're going to let go of statehood and just go to territory while we figure out all this stuff. Has that ever been mentioned? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's the, the free association status. I mean, there, there's some things of that nature, but look, it's the only thing that is independence is actual independence. Right. Um, but you know, we go back down to that process issue and sort of where the, the misconception is for some of this. Some people think that if we go to the polls and vote for independence, that, you know, independence day plus one minute, suddenly it happens, you know, and all of a sudden, you, you know, the garbage trucks don't run and, you know, we're fighting every, you know, we're fighting each other and loincloths and the Thunderdome and, you know, all of this craziness. And that's just not the way that it works. Right. We're going to ban mail-in voting though, right? I'm not going to do that. <laughs> well, <laughs> It, it'll, it'll be up to us. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, the, the fact of the matter is the process itself is we, the people express their will and then it's up to us to carry out that will, right? We have elected officials for a reason and constitutionally those guys make the laws. They, they work out the transition plan and, you know, obviously with all the input from everyone, but we have a system in place, right? It's not like the system evaporates after a, an affirmative. So, you know, we've got transitional issues we've got to deal with, um, but everything stays the same until it changes. And, and how it begins to change is all going to be predicated upon the actions that we have to take. Now, there are definitely some transitional things that are going to have to happen. We've got offices uh, that are constitutional offices that are going to have to be expanded uh, to deal with our role as a nation among nations. For example, you know, the, the one, one example I use all the time is Secretary of State, right? Our Secretary of State doesn't deal with international issues. Uh, we would probably have to expand the power of Secretary of State's office to deal with the international issues. Uh, you know, and there, there are some others, uh, you know, the comptroller's role, the, dealing with monetary policy and, and things of that nature. Yeah, so, I, I, and, and to interrupt you, I mean, one of the things my daughter's worried about is, it, she has a season pass to Six Flags. So, it, you know, it, here in Arlington, it, is her season pass for Six Flags going to be able to get her into any other park in Six Flags everywhere else? I mean, there's so many ridiculous things like that, like you're kind of talking about. But yeah. those, are, those are things people think about. And, and I know that's kind of a joke, and, and we can laugh about it. But I've honestly thought about some of those things like people with a mortgage that is FHA insured. So now they have a FHA mortgage. Is there going to be a problem there? Their bank account is FDIC insured. What's going to, you know, take place there? I know that's so far in the future, but these are probably questions you're getting hit with. Yeah. And look, we've got, uh, you know, I got guys, I wrote a book. I, I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's called Texas. Why and how Texas will leave the union. And, and I answered like, I, I, you know, we released the book two years ago and what I did was I drilled down on all those questions. And then uh, in addition, we actually have them on our website at tnm.me slash Texas and, and tons of questions like that. You know, like what about currency? How are we going to handle banking? Uh, you know, we answer those. Uh, most people don't realize is that Texas charters its own banks. 
so, you know, people think about, well, you know, how's Texas, how are, how are those banks going to do business here? How are Texas banks going to do business there? Well, most people don't realize HSBC is a Spanish bank. You know, I mean, th there are examples of how these things work. One of the questions that we get asked all the time, oddly, and I say all the time, frequently is, you know, is, are the, you know, the Longhorns or the Aggies going to still be able to play in the NCAA? And it's like, yeah, uh, the NCAA has already started the process of, of bringing in teams that are not in the United States. So they're like, okay, well, what about the Astros in Major League Baseball? It's like, did you think Toronto was part of the United States? You know, I mean, th these, these, there are examples for all of these things that already exist. You know, Social Security recipients, the most asked question that we get, what's going to happen to my Social Security? You go to the Social Security Administration website and they tell you that expats that are drawing Social Security can continue to draw Social Security as long as they don't renounce their citizenship. And the United States government doesn't force you to renounce your citizenship if you become an expat. So yeah. it, it, would this solve the Dallas Cowboys problem of not being able to get into the Super Bowl for years? I mean – you know, would, would Jerry Jones kind of support this and, and maybe the Cowboys can finally turn around and win a Super Bowl? I don't know, but maybe we would finally get the dadgum NFL team in San Antonio. <laughs> you know? Now, what, one thing I did want to address, and, um, you know, one thing I know which has been criticism from other states mm -hmm. is that, you know, they view Texas as a very – red state which isn't necessarily true we're kind of purpley pinky whatever but you know they say that you know all these things they go against in terms of human rights you know are going to be distinguished well extinguished you know like there's going to be you know going back to this whole period of racism and everything else and th this has been a difficult thing for me because you know, for, for all the, uh, you know, Hispanic representation we have in Texas, you will find few people more pro-Texas than Hispanic Texans. I mean, they love Texas. Absolutely. I mean, you, Hispanics in Texas, they love Texas. And they know it's, you know, it's the same thing, you know, black people in Texas, you know, African-Americans, when they've done the polls in terms of how they've been treated fairly in terms of job opportunities and everything else, Texas treats minorities better than almost every other state in the union. We don't just kind of throw out these banners of, oh yeah, we're against discrimination, blah, blah, blah. You know, our facts and figures are down there. They are nailed to the mast. I mean, we are the least racist state in the union in terms of a melting pot. You know, I know that was supposed to be the whole, um, you know, thing for the United States. But in Texas here, I mean, it really is. I mean, everybody here, doesn't matter if you're black, black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, they're proud to be Texan. Yeah. And, you know, all the white people here, we love how Hispanic, black, Asian brothers, sisters, we love you. You're Texans. And that's one of the biggest you know, I think people outside of Texas, you know, they try and criticize us and say, oh, it will be, you know, if you're not a Christian, you're not welcome. If you're not white, you're not welcome. But that's the biggest bunch of BS ever. I mean, we freaking love you because you're here and you're Texan. 
Well, look, here, here's, here's the bottom line. And anyone who doesn't acknowledge the fact that Texas is the melting pot that everyone believed America was, uh, it, it's just, they're ignorant. They, they don't know us, they're, they're prejudiced against us or whatever. But, but look, I think it's important to understand that this issue of Texas independence, not just Texas itself, I, you know, and I say this because people like to couch the Texan issue as a Republican issue, right? And what we have said since day one is that it is a transpartisan issue, right? It's a transcendent issue and transcends above the normal partisan politics. And, and a testament to that fact, <clears throat> excuse me, a testament to that is that the demographics of our organization more closely resemble the demographics of Texas as a whole than either major political party. And, and what that tells you is, is that our message resonates. Regardless of your ethnic background, regardless of your socioeconomic background, we view one another as Texans, okay? And, and all of us within the TNM, those that are in and those that will be in before this is all over with, they all acknowledge the fact that a Texan is a Texan is a Texan, regardless of any of those things that the, po the, the politicians, the pollsters, and the pundits use to divide us, right? We, we won't, as Texans, we won't be divided by those things. Uh, and, and we can, as you know, what's, what's amazing about Texas is the fact that everyone who gets here wants to adopt the, the Texan mindset. They want to adopt the dress and the, the speech and, and everything else. And all of those people that come here, they, they bring their flavor. You know, I, I get the best Vietnamese food in the world right here in Southeast Texas. And, and I love it. And I, and I get it from a guy who wears a cowboy hat and has a thicker accent than I do, uh, a thicker Texas accent. So, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's an amazing place that gets a bad rap from people who just hate us because they ain't us. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. And I totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. So, uh, we passed this, right. Uh, we let's, let's just pretend right now that it passes. Day one, what's it look like? Well, I, I, I can't see a scenario where they can win. And, and I'll tell you why. I mean, the campaign strategy is quite simple. Uh, for us, we intend to mount a major campaign. I mean, look, we're statewide right now uh, advertising. I mean, we're, our campaign has already started to get this across the finish line, this legislation, and then ultimately get the referendum across the finish line. But, but here's what it boils down to. We can make our case for why we should leave, and they can't make a case why we should stay. Here's the question. After many years, I got sick and tired of being asked to defend every piece of, of, our, uh, of our goal for Texas independence. And so one day, we decided to flip the tables and start asking this question. If Texas was a free and independent nation today, in every respect, we had our own money, we had our own passports, our own embassies overseas. Uh, we, we govern our affairs like any other self-governing independent nation. And you were asked the question, should Texas join the union? What would your vote be? Would you vote to join? No. Okay. <laughs> well, guess what? I mean, that's a hard no for me. That, 
That, guess oh. what? It's a hard no from everyone. <laughs> I, I mean, I literally, uh, you know, started asking that yeah. question, and I haven't uh, found a person who said absolutely yeah. yes. Because uh, because the question is, what what is your selling point, right? Is it the nearly thirty trillion dollars worth of debt, or is it the fact that we're going to immediately be crushed under one hundred eighty thousand pages of federal laws, rules, and regulations that if we printed them out and stacked them up would be taller than the San Jacinto Monument, which by the way is taller than the Washington Monument? You know what yeah. what is that selling point? And the fact of the matter is, is if you would not vote to join, then why in the world would you ever vote to stay? Hey, I, I joined the union and I got this crappy t-shirt. <laughs> and and right. $70,000 in federal debt. Yeah. So Daniel, we're getting near the end and we certainly appreciate you spending this time with us. But if, if you had one minute to convince everybody in Texas Here's why you need to do this. I, I want you to take one unadulterated minute and just say, hey, here's, here's that one minute snippet right yeah. now. Why you need to, wh whether you're like me, who has lived in Texas his whole life, whether you've got somebody like the wolf who was born in Texas, went overseas, came back, whether you're a Californian that decided, hey, I want to get rid of my tiny little house and sell that and buy a nice place over here in Texas, no matter what, it, that one minute, give me a nice one minute commercial as far as why this is important, why everybody needs to be focused on this, why we need to go ahead and say, it's time for Texas to leave the union. The floor is yours, my friend. Look, the, the, the bottom line is, is that whether someone is, is in favor of Texas or against Texas or on the bubble about Texas, the fact of the matter is, is that every one of us at a very fundamental and visceral level understand that something is wrong. Uh, something is wrong with governance. We're being crushed under the weight of those federal laws, rules, and regulations. Uh, we understand that politics has gotten poisonous from the federal level, pushing its way down into Texas. Uh, and we all, I think, at a, at, a, at, a, at a fundamental level, again, understand that a moment of decision is really at hand for all of us as Texans. Do we make a decision to have a conversation about governing ourselves or do we do nothing and allow the federal government to continue to spin out of control to destroy jobs to destroy livelihoods to destroy our freedom i mean is that really what we have it is a decision point for us and we have an opportunity right now as millions of texans are coming out of the woodwork to support not just texas but ultimately supporting having this conversation for those people who are undecided so my my I would say that, that really my, my passion for right now is that we all table the Texas discussion and have the real discussion, which is as a people, should the decision be put to us? Are we smart enough? Are we capable enough to have the conversation and take the vote? Or are we what the political establishment think of us and to stupid to make our own decision because tell, I'm, I'm telling you, that's what they think about us. So I'm just going to encourage everyone 
to go to our website at tnm.me slash Texit and get your questions answered. No pitch. All of the information is there. Ask your question, get your answers. We will guide you through the process and, uh, and we'll help you make your decision. Now, uh, it, you mentioned the website. Uh, once again, it, just give us a, a little, little more blurb. I mean, you, you got the website, but any other ways to reach out to y'all, support, all that good stuff, we, we want to make sure that we get that out there as well. Yeah, yeah. and look, for, for those that are just beyond inquiring and are ready to get in the game, uh, you know, ready to help us make Texit happen, uh, obviously, if you go to our website, I'm going to encourage you to uh, register your support. Uh, you can do that right on our main page at tnm.me, so tnm.me, uh, but also become a member, tnm.me slash join. Uh, if you can help, I mean, as I said, we're on a statewide campaign right now. We've just executed another statewide uh, media buy for radio ads, trying to connect with as many people as possible. But frankly, the, the absolute best way that we have been able to cut through the noise, uh, through the social media censorship, which has been real for us, is for each one of us who believe in Texas to reach out to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and everyone else and plug them in to the TNM. Uh, I, I do it every day uh, out there as an ambassador for this. And every one of our members and supporters are encouraged to do exactly the same. Come connect with us. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for joining us on this episode of the Wolfman Shepherd. And please reach out to Daniel with any questions. And this is something that's, you know, kind of passionate to us. And it, we're so thankful that you joined us on this podcast and hopefully here in maybe, I don't know, it, not that long, we're going to have like a, a victory dream that maybe, <laughs> maybe this actually, you know, happens. I mean, I, I've been waiting for this longer than I've been waiting for I-35 to get fixed. So hey, stop, <laughs> yeah, stop waiting and start working. There stop you go. waiting, start working. All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Wolf and the Shepherd.